I made a lot of mistakes in my first, certainly my first six months mm-hmm. and, and started to figure things out. And when I, after about five years, I took over a team of pre-sales consultants, sales engineers, discovered that many of them were making many of the same mistakes and there was very little training. So I created a training and that was about 2010. So it was over 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I created a training program for them. And over the course of the next, you know, almost decade, what, what sort of evolved was six patterns of behavior, six habits. And I felt for a long time, I just, I had this book inside me and it, it had to get out. And, and finally, in fact, Andy, I, I tried a couple times to write the book and couldn't, I just, it was so hard to get myself focused. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Chris White. Chris is founder and CEO of Tech Sales Advisor. And he's the author of a book titled, The Six Habits of Highly Effective Sales Engineers. And in this conversation from the archives of the Sales Enablement Podcast, Chris and I talk about the increasing importance of the sales engineer, the solution consultant, in winning new business. We dive into what the responsibilities are of the sales engineer in terms of orchestrating the technical win in each opportunity. We then dig into the six essential habits of sales engineers that Chris spells out in his book, including how SEs can partner more effectively with their sales counterparts and how an SE should conduct their effective discovery in preparation for a demonstration. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Chris, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing by leaving us a review. We'd really appreciate it. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it with Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andy. Delighted to be here. It's good to see you again. Um, so we're going to talk about sales engineers today. Um, indeed. Indeed. So you've written a book titled, well, for sales engineers, titled The Six Habits of Highly Effective Sales Engineers. So a very uh, Covey-ish type title there. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> and so why this book? Why now? Well, uh, you know, let, let me start with why the book. I, I've thought for, honestly, a decade plus that the sales engineer is the most underserved role in the sales enablement and sales training space. And in fact, my my story is the story of many. I started out as an IT professional, software developer, enterprise architect for 15 years. And then I got into pre-sales and I thought it was going to be brilliant because I could move a mouse and talk at the same time. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, I, and I found out I found out very quickly that there's a lot more to this role than just being good in front of an audience. And I made a lot of mistakes in my first, certainly my first six months, mm-hmm. and and started to figure things out. And and when I when I after about five years, I took over a team of pre-sales consultants, sales engineers, discovered that many of them were making many of the same mistakes, and there was very little training. So. I created a training and that was about 2010. So it was over 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I created a training program for them. And over the course of the next, you know, almost decade, what, what sort of evolved was six patterns of behavior, six 
habits. And I felt for a long time, I just, I had this book inside me and it, it had to get out. And, and finally, in fact, Andy, I, I tried a couple times to write the book and couldn't, I just, it was so hard to get myself focused. And, right. and I actually stumbled upon a, a book writing coach, a publishing coach. And he said, Chris, if you do exactly what I tell you to do, your book will be published as a number one best-selling release on Amazon in two months or less. And honestly, I wasn't sure I believed him, but I really wanted to. And so he sort of kicked me in the pants and mm -hmm. lo and behold, out, out popped a book. So, um, and, and that was two years ago. And, and honestly, I think the timing could not have been better because there, I do see sort of a newfound emphasis and momentum around the, the profession of, of pre-sales and, and sales engineering. So allow me to, allow me to pause there for a minute. Does that, does that adequately answer the first part of the question anyways? Oh yeah. 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 No, it's good. We'll have, we'll have more questions. So, um, so you said when you took your first sales engineering job that you had never considered yourself a salesperson and you actually no. sort of thought perhaps it was beneath you, I think was the word you used beneath me. Um, so why the switch? It sounded like a little bit like you had sort of, I call it some career ADD and that you wanted more variety in, in the types yeah. of things you were doing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, a, it's actually a really good, a really good question, Andy. And for starters, and, and you, you'll actually see a pattern here. I actually, I got to a point in my career, I was a consultant, very well paid, but I was unhappy. And, and mm -hmm. why was I unhappy? Because I would land on a project, I'd be there for three or four months to figure things out, and then I just wanted to jump to the next project. And, and I, the idea of being in one place for you know, a, an extended period of time just felt like a, a jail sentence to me. Mm -hmm. Whereas a number of the consultants I worked with, they, they longed to have a three-year contract, a four-year contract. <laughs> I was like, oh my right. gosh. Like, just, I couldn't do that. So I was not a turn the crank kind of guy, right? I yeah. thought there was, I thought there was something wrong with me, Andy. I really did. So I found, I, I found a career, like a professional career counseling coach, if you will. I went through a series of, you know, tests and, and, and discovery. And he basically said, there's nothing wrong with you at all, Chris. You just got a number of talents and skills that need an outlet. And you probably should be like a technical spokesperson for a product company. And, and on my journey, I had discovered that I loved presenting. I loved pitching, presenting, giving quote demonstrations. And so this, this idea of being in a technical pre-sales role where I was actually paid to stand up in front of people and do demonstrations Oh my gosh, like that sounds perfect to me. Here's the part that I didn't understand. There's actually a process to sales, right? The, the job wasn't just me standing up in front of people and being the smart person in the room, right? It wasn't about me showing off my expertise. It was more about helping customers understand how our solution can help them. And, and, mm -hmm. and there's, there's a process to this. And that was the part that sort of hit me in the face. But yeah, I mean, the idea of just being airdropped in, doing a demonstration, I was excited about that part. <laughs> All right. So let's dive into the book. So you say the 
number one goal of technical pre-sales is to get the technical win. So define that for us and, and let's, let's dive into that a bit. Yeah, another good question. So I define the technical win as, if I can use the word convincing, convincing our prospects, our, our audience, our customers, beyond a reasonable doubt that our products, our solutions, our people, our company are the right choice for them, can help them accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, achieve their objectives, address their problems. That's what I refer to as the technical win. Now, a lot of people actually take me to, to task on that a little bit because the, their argument is we shouldn't just be focusing on the technology. And they're 100% correct. This is not just about the technology. Does it align with the business objectives? Will the, will the, talent, will the technology, will the solution help them meet the business objectives, the objectives of the stakeholder. So to me, getting the technical win simply means, does it satisfy the need? Does it fit the requirements and, and help you know, address what they're trying to accomplish? So to me, that, that's the role or that's the objective. Does, does that make sense to you, Andy? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, th I think that, yeah, maybe put it in a little bit different context because I think that, that, and this is, I think, is a hard thing for, for people to understand because... Yeah, certainly if you're selling a, a tech product, there's a, you know, you call it a technical win. And that, yeah, it's a good term for it. But, you know, when buyers are going through their process is, you know, they have, I say they have three stages that buyers go through. And we can have a longer conversation later about how we don't map to those necessarily in the way we sell to people. But this idea of a technical win, I think, is is important in that context in that, the three stages buyers have is basically they first have to understand what it is they're trying to do, right? What's what's the challenge we have? What are the potential outcomes that we can achieve? The second phase is, well, okay, now that we've defined what the thing is, how are we going to do that? And, you know, this technical win really comes at the end of that house stage, right? Is And, yes, it's not divorced from business because they go hand in hand. Um, yeah. you know, any, any evaluation of a technical solution has a business component to it as well. So, so yeah, this idea that sellers need to get their minds wrapped around that, that aligns with what you talk about in the book is that in every deal you're working on as a seller, as a pre-sales engineer is you want to get your solution designed into the buyer's vision of success. Absolutely. And Absolutely. so that's really, that's the goal, right? Is, is, and this happens in every buying situation, certainly in a complex level, maybe not so much in transactional, though actually the science of decision-making says it happens even on a transactional level is people go through steps of defining what the problem is they're trying to solve, identifying a number of options to help reach the objectives they have to solve that problem, and then choosing which one of those are a best fit. Absolutely. And then the third order consideration is who are we going to do that with? See, I think the idea of a technical win is almost product agnostic to some degree. Because when the customer makes the decision about, well, this is how we want to solve the problem, it's not 
necessarily vendor specific. I mean, the net result is, yeah, when they, if you've done a good job of influencing their vision of what their vision of success is for what the outcomes are, and you're embodied in that and embedded in that, then yeah, you're going to get the deal. Yeah. Well, and if I may, I mean, I, I love what you just said there. I mean, one of the things that we talk about in, in a number of the workshops that, that I run is let's focus, let, let's first focus on what does the customer need to believe and buy into before they're even ready to consider your product, right? If we can align on a, on a logical, on a contextual level, right, and we have a shared understanding of the problem and the solution, right? Forget about the product for a moment, right? This is the problem. And if you had this solution, that would be the right answer. If we can agree on that, then the product almost becomes the logical consequence, right? To me, oh, yeah. it's, it's just that, that that's the logical jump. Yeah. And Andy, you've heard me say this before, I think, right? One of my favorite sayings, he or she who buys a shovel doesn't want a shovel. They want a hole. They want a hole, but they don't just want a hole. They want a fence or a tree, but they don't just want a fence or a tree. They want privacy or they want shade. But we get so focused on the shiny shovel. We want to talk about the blade and the handle. And the reality is, is most people don't care about the shovel. And those who do oftentimes don't have the budget, right? So to me, getting the technical win is here's how we're going to help you get the privacy you're looking for with our approach, with our solutions, right? And ultimately, yes, with, with our tools, right? But that's secondary to helping you get to where you're trying to go. Does, does that really Well, I think that the, so the nuance I might put on that is just that, that yeah, you're going to help them get the privacy with this approach. And the key is, as a seller, is you're selling this approach and it's not identified by your product nomenclature. Right. This is the best approach. Oh, by the way, when we get to this point, yes, this is this is what our product does or does in part or whatever, you know, whatever part of the solution we are. But but, you know, this whole idea of of the customer getting this technical win, I believe, in my mind, is what I'll call a design in. Right. You're getting the design win is being designed into the buyer's business being designed into the solution that they're envisioning is that it's it's really sort of it's a battle of ideas it's not a battle of products and this is really a challenge for sellers is to be able to divorce themselves from just pushing their product and talking about solutions that best fit the buyer could not agree more and and you know Andy as you as you were sharing I, the, one of the thoughts that came to mind is consider the buying organization and and the individuals the committees involved in making particularly a, a, an enterprise B2B you know purchase decision you clearly you've got your executive sponsors your decision makers but typically you've got some key experts within the organization that the decision makers are looking to try to help guide the decision. To me, getting the technical win is getting is is convincing the and working with the experts within that organization to to your to your point to define what the right solution looks like, right? And convince them that our solution is the one that will fit that mold. To me, and that's who the so if I sell a high-tech product, 
who are the experts that I'm working with? Probably the high-tech architects and engineers within the organization. If I sell maybe a marketing technology, who are the experts? Maybe it's the digital you know, content you know, manager or director or something of that nature. Does that does that resonate with you, Andy? Yeah, I mean, in part, I think that I think that, uh, at least in my mind, a a better way to think about this is that rather than you're not trying to, I believe, and this is my experience, is you're not trying to convince the buyer that your particular feature, let's say, um, you know, needs to be included in their final spec of their requirements that they're building, but you're trying to influence how they look at the problem so that it becomes sort of the logical conclusion that your your approach to things as a product and a service or whatever is best aligned with what they want to achieve in their business outcomes. And so you're, you know, they have a series of choices they have to make and trade-offs, right? Throughout the entire buying process, they're making trade-offs. Is and your job is really to influence the choices they make that precede making a decision because they have all these options. And I think this is, this is again, without getting in the weeds too much, but as a seller and a sales engineer, this is, this is the approach you have to have, which is you know, the ultimate thing that the buyer is going to come up with is some sort of final specification or requirements document or something that illustrates, or the, excuse me, is the basis on which they have sort of this vision of success. And the components of that as much as possible, you want to use the value, the questions you ask, the the you know the insights you provide, and so on, to influence their choice about each of those trade offs. I completely agree, and and I love to use the term the disruptive truth. Right, the more we can bring disruptive truths about how best to solve those problems, how how best to think about how to solve those problems, right? And, and to your point, broaden the, our prospects' perspectives on how best to address the issues that they're trying to address or, or, or solve those problems. Yeah, I mean, there's there's been research done on decision-making, uh, in particular by somebody named Paul Nutt, uh, who was, I think was at, I don't know if he's still alive or not. He, I know he's an emeritus at Ohio State at one point. Um, but one of the experts on corporate decision making, and really put together this sort of idea of, but you know, people look at, evaluate these these options, you know, prior to making a decision about how they're going to solve their, and and the thing that's really interesting is he found that oftentimes when the options are presented to stakeholders or decision makers uh, to make a choice about how they want to proceed before they decide, you know, this is a pre-decision to deciding what vendor to go with is that in an overwhelming majority of cases is they basically only present two options mm. to the decision maker. And so when you sort of think about, oh, well, that's, now let's, let's you know, walk that back a little bit because there's data that exists. Yeah, I just saw a report just last week, a couple years old, but I think it's still valid. They were saying that 40 to 50% of, of deals in a B2B pipeline end up in no decision. So if you assume that somebody has two choices, one of those choices is always to do nothing, right? Mm. So as a seller, if you and as a pre-sale engineer, if you do a really good job of framing 
and influencing the choices and the trade-offs the buyer makes is that when they put together that final requirements document, you want a third party to be able to look at that and say, wow, Chris and his team did a fantastic job. They're all over this, right? Um, and then the choice is, yeah, we go with Chris or we do nothing. Right. Right. And, and I, I think a big part of that is truly understanding what are they actually trying to accomplish, right? And, and being the experts, right? De again, delivering a, a better way to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish than, than they even knew might was possible. Yeah, well, I think that that fundamentally becomes the role of sellers to some degree. I mean, we can sort of break it down even further in terms of what the actual role is. But when you serve a day-to-day, -day, when you're interacting with buyers as a, again, either pre-sale or a seller, is the bar is actually, at least from my perspective, pretty low in that what the buyer's expectation is, and this gets the whole thing, you know, people talk about, oh, buyers don't want to talk with sellers anymore and so on, which I don't think is the case. They just don't want to talk to sellers who can't help them, right? And so, and that seems like as a seller, your job is you just need to be able to contribute something of value above and beyond what the buyer can find online. Tell me something I don't already know. And so, as a, again, as a pre-sales engineer, as a seller, that that is, in my mind, is a pretty low bar. But it seems to be one that we have a hard time sort of consistently getting over because at least based on the, the surveys you see of, of the dissatisfaction that the buyers have talking to sellers – and partly, I think, because yeah, people are going in and just flogging their products mm. as opposed to being this consultative, trusted advisor. Hey, let's let's make sure I understand before I sell anything. Let's make it really sure I understand yeah, what is the most important thing to you and how can I help you get that? Exactly. Exactly. And, and, I, and I think pre-sales, pre-sales, sales engineers can help balance that out a little bit. Right. And in fact, many of the pre-sales engineers that I work with, they're they're so concerned about misleading the customer. They're so concerned about, quote, overselling that they almost overcompensate. And <laughs> yes. at, at times they, they offer cautionary advice where cautionary advice isn't warranted. Right. One of, one of my favorite sayings is thou shall not voluntarily confess thy sins. <laughs> right. Well, but you you address that in the book, though. You say that sometimes, yeah, you know, I think as part of your your habit number one with uh, partnering with your sales counterpart is that uh, you give examples of how to extract yourself from what a you know an overpromise and overcommitment a seller may have made. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, which is always a, a delicate balance. For sure. Yeah, I mean, as a sales engineer, we. We tend to walk a fine line between, you know, at the technical side of our brain and the, the what I'll call the, the salesy side of our brain, right? What customers are, are, are asking, what our sales counterparts are, are asking or expecting of us. So we, we, we sort of live in this, this world of, of balancing, sort of competing objectives and, and, and principles, if I can use that term, for sure. Well, who does the customer trust more, the, the SC or the seller? I think, I think customers in, inherently trust the, the technical 
sales engineer, pre-sales engineer, call, call them what they may, more so than the, the sales professional. In fact, and, and, I, and, I, and I remind the sales engineers that I work with, it's actually unfair. It's unfair for our sales counterparts, our, our account executive sales counterparts, because they are presumed guilty until proven <laughs> innocent, right? Yeah. Yes. So, so they are swimming upstream in terms of building trust. So we, we actually can help the, te- the sales team become viewed more as trusted advisors Right. By by stepping in at certain times and and in certain ways, we also need to understand that that's one of our superpowers as a sales engineer. Right. Is that we're sort of extended that that I think that trust inherently. Go ahead. You were going to say something. Well, yeah, it was just sort of. (laughs) So how how should a salesperson, if that's the case, which I agree is is oftentimes the case is, you know, sort of. Technical experts given sort of the benefit of the doubt, over opposed to salespeople. But you know, how should how should technical experts, sales engineers, sort of manage the seller in order to help the seller gain their own credibility? So it's an interesting question. I mean, I think there are a couple ways. I think first of all, one one of the things we have to make sure that we're we're always doing is we we need. We need to represent ourselves and our companies and our colleagues in the highest regard at all times. And I've literally seen some sales engineers say things that almost are, let, let's just, just say sort of negative or they, they make negative connotations about their or subtle comments about their, their sales counterpart or maybe, or maybe, um, in front of the buyer, you're talking about. In front of the buyer. Yeah, yeah. that's that's in dangerous. Front of the buyer. Yeah. So, so we so we always need we always need to present a united front. I, I think to me the 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 relationship between SE and AE, sales and pre-sales, is is so critical. And we need to put this stuff on the table and, and talk it through, right? I think sales needs to be more at peace with the fact that they they do sometimes struggle to build credibility and trust with their sales counterparts. And, and whereas their, their engineers are, are extended that trust more readily and, and have more of an equal role in front of the customer and with the customer. But when, when given that opportunity, the sales engineer, again, needs to make sure that we don't focus too much on the technology, too much on the details. I mean, you know, what, an article I read recently is the problem, the problem with your product demonstration is it's all about your product. Mm-hmm. And it, in, instead, it needs to be about your customer, right? And what the customer is trying to accomplish. So to me, this is where this is where I think both parties need to take a step towards the middle. Sales needs to take a step towards their 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 technical pre-sales counterpart. Pre-sales needs to take a step towards their their sales sales counterpart. Sales needs to be a little less salesy. Technical needs the the, the pre-sales engineers need to be a little less technical. Yeah, I mean. Sales needs to be a lot less salesy, um, not, not just a little less salesy. Um, and that's the subject of my new book coming out in February. A little plug. Um, so let's go into your habits. 
So you have six habits. Habit number one is partner with your sales counterpart. Uh, habit number two is, and we'll dig in the first two most in-depth, is to probe into any request for a demonstration, really talking about technical discovery. Uh, habit three is prepare with effectiveness and efficiency in mind. Absolutely. Habit four, uh, the most consistently successful SEs practice their demos religiously. Yep. Um, five, habit five is to perform under the spotlight. Now, this is sort of interesting. Maybe we'll take a little digression here before I go back to the first two habits is um, – yeah, you're addressing sort of there's a, a performance aspect to, to selling, whether you're an SE or a salesperson. I sincerely believe that there are very specific things that we need to say, show, and do, and specific things we need to avoid saying, showing, and doing in order to get the technical win, or at the very least, in order to adequately deliver, deliver an effective message and achieve the goal of the meeting. And I do believe that when, when we, whenever we engage with a customer to a certain degree, we are on stage, right? This is what I, what I tell the sure. sales engineers I work with. At some point, the spotlight shines on you. And it, it, in that moment, it's your time to perform. So yes, I, I do believe it's a performance. And you know, what, one of the, one of the new cons, newer concepts that I'm kicking around, Andy, is you want to win more deals, Win more meetings. Like if we were to break down, if we were to break down the, 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 you know, some of the elements of a successful deal, it breaks into successful meetings. So let's win every meeting. Oh yeah. No, I, I, I break it down even further. It's, it's actually a matter of moments is you have to be excellent in the moment, not just in the meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and, and so I think, and unfortunately, a lot of people who enter, let's, a lot of people who are recruited into the sales engineer role are because they have the technical expertise. And there's a lot of companies out there looking for technical expertise. They may or may not have the sales expertise. And many of them don't understand that there is a difference between a sales demonstration, a sales conversation, and the conversations you're used to having where you're just providing or the purveyor of technical information, you're just the purveyor of product information. That's no longer your job from my vantage point. It is a sales role. And so we need to understand. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The positioning, I think, is important because, yeah, someone I've, who's recruited technical people into sales uh, for quite a long time is, and even not just, you know, IT folks, but, you know, hardcore design engineers into sales is they always have this reluctance that it is sales to your point earlier. And the way I help people sort of come to grips with it is, is to say, well, what do you think selling is? And oh, it's always about, you know, convincing or persuading somebody to buy something they don't necessarily need. It's like, well, no, it's your, your problem solver. Exactly. Customer has a problem. Your job is to help them understand the problem and decide what's the best way to solve it. Isn't that what you do as an engineer? Oh yeah. That's sort of the way we do as an engineer. It's internal, but yeah, we have problems and we're solving problems on a daily basis. Yeah. 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 I mean, very early in my workshops, we established just right out of the gate. First and foremost, you are in sales. And if you're not comfortable with that, 
To sell is to solve. And to sell is to serve. Mm -hmm. And if if you're not at peace with that, then maybe you're not in the right profession, right? But at the end of the day, and and I, I sincerely, you know, we talk a lot about this notion of servant leadership. Mm -hmm. I, I think more and more of us need to think of servant sales personship. If I can, if I can say that word, right? We are, we are serving the five words. Yeah. If we are servant sale. If we think of ourselves as servant salespeople, we are going to do much better. That's really, we are here to serve. We are here to help our customers make the best decisions they can, whether that's in our favor or not. Right. And, sure. and I wouldn't take the word leadership out of that. I think that the sales inherently is a leadership position. I mean, it's, it's, you know, if you're subservient, too subservient and passive as a seller, then you're not going to be in a good position to really, you know, A, earn the trust of the buyer that you need and to help influence the decisions that they need to make. I mean, you, you to some degree, you as a seller are leading someone and you, you can lead from behind, which is, I think, the role of the seller, uh, leading them to a decision about what represents a good decision for them. I completely agree. And by the way, I love the fact that you use the word subservient because I think that's an important distinction, right? To be a servant salesperson doesn't mean to be subservient, right? In fact, and I, I tell, I say this all the time, right? People don't always make the best decisions for themselves. They're not always sure what the best decisions are, right? They need help making decisions. That's one of our jobs is to help them find the best decisions for themselves. And in that way, we are leaders. In fact, we can, we can take the lead in helping them solve their problems because we're the experts, right? Just like if I, if I hire a plumber, I, I don't expect him or her to be a subservient you know, service provider. I expect him or her to come in and say, this is how we're gonna solve that problem. No, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. You, you know, people can hear this and think, well, geez, okay, how do I parse all this? Because on one hand, Andy, you always talk about the problem with sellers being too salesy, you know, too persuasion-oriented uh, without really first understanding. But on the other hand, you're talking also about sort of leading from behind. And it's like, well, yeah, they all sort of, that they all come together, right? Is is not to overuse the term, but this idea of of we talk about trust, we talk about being a trusted advisor, we talk about, and as a seller and a sales engineer, you both have to get into that position where the buyer says, "Look, you've got something to add." You talk about you know disrupting their their thinking. They have something to add that I hadn't really thought about before in the, this context, and. Yeah, they serve. They really they understand what I'm trying to do, and that's a really interesting, interesting thought that's going to lead me in a different direction. And I couldn't agree more. And and you know, Andy, as you said those words, the the one word that came to mind for me, which which ties all these things together, is priority. Who's the priority in the conversation? Who's the priority in my recommendation? and my words of advice. Am I the priority because I just want to sell something? Or am I saying this for your, are you, 
do I sincerely believe that this is what's best for you? Am I speaking because I truly believe that this is in your best interest, right? And and if I since and you can't fake that, right? This isn't this isn't like you know a, a sales tactic, right? This it's a mindset. You need to sincerely want to help people, right? And you need to be an expert in helping people. And if you sincerely take that approach, I think people recognize. Wow, like this person's actually trying to give me the advice that will help me. And and to me, it's all about making, demonstrating to the people we're talking to and dealing with that, look, you're the priority in this conversation. I'm, you know, my, my advice, my recommendations are all based on what I think is in your best interest. Wh- whether whether it's right for me or not is, is secondary, right? So yeah. to me, to me, that's and and anybody who might be listening to this, that the, here's the one thing we know. Unf- again, unfortunately, we we all us in sales, we have commission breath, right? We show up and they can smell it on our breath, like whoo, like you know, like because everything we say is tied to a commission. So 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 the people we work with immediately their their default is to assume you're just saying this because you want to sell me something, right? So we have to demonstrate throughout the sales process that they're the priority in the conversation. They're the priority in our recommendation. Does that, does that resonate with you, Andy? Oh, yeah. No, of course. I mean, this is, this is uh, it's like you've read my books. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, this is so the challenge, right? This is, this is sort of the ongoing challenge, sort of this like Jekyll and Hyde thing that, that is ever-present in sales and has been probably for, yeah, a hundreds of years and if not longer and is still yeah perhaps the biggest problem that sellers have today is is this perception of them by buyers that that they're out for their own self-interest first and you know buyers don't come across or come upon those those beliefs independent of experiences sure there's you know Popular culture portrays salespeople a certain way, but they also have a set of experiences they're drawing upon. And so the reputation we have as sellers, unfortunately, is one that we've earned and using that as the collective we. Um, but we have the power to change that as well. Completely agree. Completely. So, I mean, just following the steps that, that you've talked about is, you know, being service oriented is, is changing the perspective I mean, here's a very simple one that for sellers to think about and wrote about this in my second book is, is, you know, selling is, is not something you do to a buyer, mm. it's something you do with a buyer mm. and th- that change of perspective aligns with what we were just talking about, but it, it does then does shape and should shape the actions that you take and your behaviors. Yeah. Because you're thinking, well, I'm not imposing myself. You do something to somebody, you're basically imposing yourself on them, right? Yeah. Um, well, that's that means you're falling back to the old persuasion-based, you know, sleazy techniques, say over, overly salesy, overly hypey. And it's like, yeah, everybody inherently resists those as human beings. I mean, the Jonah Berger, a professor at Wharton School, uh, wrote about this in his latest book, The Catalyst, is, yeah, everybody in the world basically has this resistance to being persuaded. So why do we still basically train people to to do that, sellers to do that? Yep. 
because that's what we think is the right thing to teach. Well, but when you think about it, I mean, <laughs> this is the part that, that you know, I, I keep coming back on. I'm, and this is sort of the subject, I don't know, another plug for my new book coming in February is, but is that, you know, these, these set of behaviors that I label as salesy behaviors, we, we all sort of know what those are. We've felt it. We've perhaps indulged in them ourselves from time to time. That don't work with buyers, for the most part, is those are not innate human behaviors. Those are learned behaviors. And yeah. it's human nature to want to connect with another human being. It's human nature to want to ask questions and be interested and understand another human being. It's, it's human nature to want to understand and to, to generously give, right? To help somebody else. And somehow you think, oh, that should be easier to train people and sellers in those behaviors than in these salesy behaviors. Well, and, and, and I think a lot of it has to do with the pressures that come sort of down the chain, right? So I think a lot of it is driven by management who who thinks the right thing to do is you know either either get out the stick or get out get out the carrot, and you know un unfortunately this this is the the tide that we are swimming against the, those like you and me who do believe there's a better way to go about this. So yeah, well. It's what keeps authors and consultants and uh, trainers and so on in business. But it's, it's, it actually would be great to have the need for that type of work go away. Yeah, <laughs> I, I say that as someone who, who yeah, makes a living. But it's, it's yeah, we, 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 can, we can make a change. We can make the decision uh, that it's time to stop these types of behaviors that are so counterproductive and it doesn't take that much of a will to do that, but it's, it's, and unfortunately, as you talked about, sort of anchored in the, in the belief that somehow being these prototypical stereotyped sales person works. And, you know, it's not a zero sum game. It's not like a, never works or always works. It's like, you know, people need to buy things. Yeah. People hold their noses and buy from sellers that, that, uh, you know, it's not, they don't think it's an ideal interaction, but yeah, people still manage to sell using those old, old fashioned behaviors. Uh, but Indeed. it's, we could, we collectively as a sales profession, corporate leaders, you could make a decision that, yeah, the time is is now, and we can just stop these things. Yeah, yeah. Well, well. Hopefully, all the work that you're doing with you know with these podcasts and the the book that's coming out, I, I know shortly, um, we'll, we'll we'll certainly continue to to turn the tide a little bit. Unfortunately, I, I do think it's human nature. What, you know, one of the things that we talk about in my workshops is this notion that look, we're we're, we're we natively default to self. It, it just you know, it's just how, we're, unfortunately, it's just how we're wired. And, and some of these things that we're talking about, they should come natural, but they're not always convenient for, for whatever reason, right? It's not, it's not necessarily convenient to put our agenda second, right? It's not necessarily convenient to work hard to understand 
the, the people that we're meeting with and, and working with as opposed to just wanting to, let me just tell you all about me and my product and my stuff, right? Well, but I think that certainly there's, you know, you look at the distribution of personalities in the world is there's a certain segment of them that are self-centered, right? Um, but based on everything I've read and, and you know, in terms of papers and research stuff online is in books is, is that that's not the majority of, of people in the world. I mean, the people I said this is you think about just, just simple act of making a friend, right? Is yeah. often when you're trying to make a friend, which is something, you know, most people in the world are fairly adept at They have friends. Again, there are exceptions, but in the main, uh, when you meet somebody new in a social situation, is the first thing you do is pitch them on yourself? I mean, generally, no. Oh, generally, you generally yeah, you, 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 yeah. you ask them a question. You're sort of interested in them. You, you're maybe willing to explore if there might be an opportunity to, I said, for a friendship to exist or some sort of relationship. So you try to find common ground. You ask questions about them. That's normal human behavior. And then, But we put yeah. people into a sales situation, and it's like they suspend that. Yeah. Um, and... And I think that then becomes a challenge. It's like, no, actually, it's going to work for you better is to, to be yourself, right? Yeah. Be who you are as a human being. And you'll find that's a quicker path to connecting, building trust, credibility with the buyer than showing up and throwing up. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason, we seem to lose our humanity when we step, quote, into our role. And, and I don't understand that. One of the things that I've been saying is it's more it's more important than ever before to be human in our jobs. In fact, it's more OK than ever before to be human in our jobs because our personal and professional lives have come together like never before. Right. And, and, and yet we still seem to it's almost like we need to take on this new persona because we're in a certain role. And and nothing could be further from the truth. Yeah, well, I think there's there. It's a great point, and and I think it it you look at any job in life, right? Not a profession necessarily, but any any role we fill in life. I believe there are two aspects to it, not just me. I, yeah, social scientists believe it as well. Is that is you know we <laughs> we have two roles in that. There's our the role itself, but then there's also the human part of it. And, and, you know, like, <laughs> we just, we need to think about the fact that perhaps one of the things we're missing in the way that we help train people, enable people in the sales profession and other professions perhaps as well, is that we assume that they have these fundamental human skills that are needed to connect with other people. And I think it's a, a false assumption. And... We shouldn't make that. We shouldn't assume people know how to connect. We shouldn't assume people know how to be interested in other people, be curious, display their curiosity. Yet these are things that can people can be educated about, and they are behaviors that people can adopt. But we have to spend more time on it. Instead, we just throw them into the you know, sales onboarding and say, hey, here's what you need to do without this grounding in you know, these fundamental human skills, this humanity, as you talk about it, that will help them succeed. And... Why do you think that is? Why, why do you think, is it, does it start with the organization itself? Does it, does the organization itself not 
recognize individuals as as humans and make people feel comfortable as humans in their role. So as a result, they just go out into the market and and sort of treat the people that they're dealing with in in a similar manner. Well, I think there's an element of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, But I think, you know, we also have certain things just in terms of the, you know, our use of technology as a society, right, Is, Mm -hmm. is sellers, one of their job is they need to speak with people. And on the phone or on a video call. And, yeah, we have generations that are more digitally native that that they just haven't done much of that. Right? Mm -hmm. So why are we assuming that they know how to do it? So, and this is not necessarily a new thing. I mean, companies going back even about 10 years now have been, some bigger companies have been saying, look, we need to train people new to the workforce on just some of these basic skills like how to how to talk to somebody on the phone and that's okay it's not anybody's fault it's not the fault of anybody they don't know how to do it it's just the world we're in so but why don't we train them right why don't we train them on some of these basics and give them exposure to it and that's i think a huge shortfall coming shortfall shortcoming uh in most organizations is yeah we don't focus on training the person before we train them for the role very yeah, well I think said. we need more of that. So, yeah, very well said. All right. Well, Chris, thank you thank for joining you. me. Thank you so much, sir. It's it's always a pleasure to speak to you, and likewise, a d- delight to be be a guest. So, thanks for well, having me. Glad that you uh, were able to join me. So, tell people where they can find out more about your book and connect with you. Yeah, of course, they can find me on on LinkedIn, Chris White, Demo Doctor. And the book is available on Amazon, The Six Habits of Highly Effective Sales Engineers. And if you go to demodoctor.com, you can learn much more about my training and online training and workshops that I run. Perfect. All right. Well, Chris, as always, pleasure and look forward to doing it again. Thank you, Andy, so much. We'll see you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Chris White, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.